Welcome to the Propane Business Podcast. I'm Johnny. And I'm Yusuf. We set up and built propanefitness.com into the profitable semi-automated system that it is today, which allowed us to quit our corporate jobs and coach online full-time. More importantly, we were able to do this without a huge online audience or being glued to social media every day. We're now ready to share everything from the failures we've made to the systems that now consistently generate hundreds of thousands in revenue. We help personal trainers, coaches, and gym owners do the same by avoiding the mistakes we've made and the best practices going forward. Subscribe to this podcast to learn what we're doing and what we've done to build and scale propanefitness.com. We'll be teaching you how to generate a steady flow of online clients, win at Facebook ads, automate your coaching systems, and to achieve financial independence. Let's, so, let's, you, let's, so you actually, John, it's, it's yeah. entirely your fault that we do this for a living. Sorry. <laughs> um, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> no, really, really well. But I, so I was driving home from a corporate job and I listened to you appear on Rise to the Top podcast. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah. Yeah. With, um, oh my God. <laughs> oh, what? He's got three names. Know. Uh, but yes, I remember you, um, you were on the podcast. Yeah. And you were talking through cause Yusuf and I were like, Oh, online fitness would be fun, but there can't be any money in online fitness. Like surely not. And then you were going through like the roughly the numbers of the final phase fat loss. David launch. Seitman Garland is the guy's name. I just remember <laughs> David. Yes. David Seitman I was watching yeah, like so, the, the loading screen there. And yeah, that's like, <laughs> that, yeah. So some part of my memory, put. so yeah, we, in, in that podcast, it was one of the first big ones that it was about uh, that I was featured on in which there was a discussion of business. Mm. Historically, I'd been on all of these fitness podcasts and it would be very much, tell me about your new product. Tell me about intermittent fasting or this launch or, you know, like what is it? What's, what's the new product coming out? And that was the first one, I believe, that was behind the scenes because David was not a fitness person. He was a business person and he was interviewing me about um, e-products in general, e-publishing. Uh, um, and that, that created the opportunity to talk about the numbers of that launch. Whereas in, in, it was very strange at that time, because this was, I suppose in 2010, um, when, when the first launch happened. And at that time to be successful in the fitness industry, there, there was this sort of forced ideology about the need to to constantly portray this hat in hand type of financial humility, almost as though if people knew how financially successful you were and, and the degree to which they're purchasing your product contributed to that, then they might stop doing so. It was the idea that you were always supposed to look like you were, you know, trying to stay hungry. And, uh, and so at now it, it's very different 10 years later. It's flipped polar opposite now, isn't it's it? Polar like opposite. Now it's flashing it's, the Lambos and right. doing the whole, um, Greg Gallagher thing with the, the drones and the mansion. And <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Greg, Greg is on a whole different thing. Cause you know, he can't, he comes from family money. Not to say that Greg isn't successful in his own right, but like he didn't buy his fucking, you know, Bruce Wayne, he didn't buy Wayne Manor, the Canadian version of Wayne Manor with from teachable his, sales. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, at the, at that time it was very much, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily uncouth to discuss money in that way. It was just not really encouraged. And that interview, uh, I think had the same effect on many people that it did on you where we, we really dove in to the anatomy of a launch and, you know, at, at, in much the same way that that product became 
a stepping stone in my career. Now, retrospectively, that launch was equally, it, it, is, it is now canonized in the legend of Roman um, as, as having been very successful and, and the most successful online fitness launch at that time. And so you, to, to, to um, that's the context. So tell me more of the content. You were driving home listening yeah, so- to this. So I was just like, oh my God, like I, cause I, as you say, like every, the, the perception that everyone was giving off was, uh, you know, we're doing, we're not doing this for the money. It's, you know, I get to help people online. I get to spread my message. And I heard, I just, that was the first ever discussion I'd ever heard about the, the, the numbers that were possible. And it was different, different world to what I thought was, was possible. So I guess that for us, like, was like okay well you know john's in on t nation writing for i think i guess men's health men's fitness at the time as well um we probably can't do that but why don't we try and do like a a bit if we did a bit of that that would also still be quite good so that that led us to i guess take this stuff more seriously because i think pre before that we thought that the online fitness world was people wrote blogs because it was a nice thing to do and that, that helped people, but no one was really doing it and making a living out of it was, was certainly how, and so many people I've spoken to since then it, who were around at that time in the fitness industry thought the same thing mm-hmm. Thought everyone's a personal trainer who has a website. The website's a bit of a side gig, but personal training is how they're sort of earning a living. I think, I think there was a, a, time period during which that was true probably more like 2008 to 2011 where you were a trainer you'd been a trainer for a long while and this became uh your website became or blog became a hub for content and you developed an audience and then you could release stuff for them and then like anything else whatever wherever the the money is is where the attention will flow and the energy will go and people who had, who didn't have long standing careers as trainers began creating content and information. And now you see that pattern repeating people who, who like don't have ex- a lot of experience running businesses become business coaches and whatever else. And I'm not here to assume, pass judgment on that, just sort of the nature of, of how things go, but there, there, uh, that final phase launch and, and the product launches surrounding it during that year were certainly paradigm shifting for the industry and its perception and that uh so i am i am happy that it encouraged you all both you two directly and and indirectly or directly the the listeners here if it if it affected you uh to to follow your dreams and and you know do the stuff that's going to make you money because certainly while none of us could have predicted the, the the great apocalypse of 2020, <laughs> it is certainly not a bad time to be able to make money on the internet. And um, yeah. you know, having now been in it for a decade, it's 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 quite the retrospective. Well, this yeah. is something that I think is quite rare, especially in in the industry we were talking about things flipping over to being very image focused. And actually, even the previous one was still image focused. The hat in hand. Me- method i suppose because it is a method and it's just a it's a separate image but it's just a um a very kind of tactical one but you throughout your metamorphosis kind of over the last few years you've always been breaking the fourth wall and kind of commenting on the industry that you're also in and i think that's what makes your content really unique to follow and really um really insightful because you're you're seeing someone who's who's in that space commenting on like here's where we're going and and you from from what i've seen like you've managed to maintain the con- constant thread of like 
the personal brand, despite what you actually offer, changing over that time and evolving. And I think your audience have kind of evolved with you. And because you've been like part of the commentary as well as part of the, the content, people have kept up, which has been really interesting. It's been interesting for me, certainly. I did a recent audit of my mailing list, which at the present moment has about 68,000 people. And there are just over 15,000 people on that list who have been there since 2010. So wow. it's 10, 10, 10, uh, 10 years of people just like hanging out, <laughs> <laughs> seeing the whole thing. the nicest things. It's, it's very like, cool. Like having an old friend. Like when you get a message and someone's like, oh yeah, I've been following you guys since 2009. And you're like, Oh my God. You like, it's almost like you're looking into my, my embarrassing dirty teenage uh, wardrobe, mm. like all of my old blog posts and all the kind of the evolution throughout the thing. But people often say, actually, I, what I really enjoy is the authenticity and seeing your evolution of thought. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So w- would you be able to talk about that and how kind of you've, you've always been quite, quite candid um, about pretty much everything that goes on in your life? Certainly. Um, when I first began to write, to publish my writing in, in the fitness space, it was, it was articles. And so I, I was coming out and I would write an article for T Nation, for example. My first ever article published for T Nation was called Booty Call. It was a, a, a glute training program. And at this time, 2002 when I was doing this, it was before social media. And so most of the, the community and the interaction took place in internet forums and the TMAG forums were particularly popping. That was a lit place to hang out in 2002. And what I noticed was no matter how good the article was and how well received it was, the, the comment section about the article was like one thing, but the, the, which was good. But the off-topic session section was another thing, and and that's where people would go to talk about books and movies and you know everything outside of lifting. And so you, I would write an article for T Nation about compound isolation movements, and that comment section for the article would would be pretty not bland, but you know focused. And then that same day, I'd go over to the off-topic thing, and we'd be talking about whatever movie was coming out in 2003, um, and people still arguing about whether Brad Pitt was natural in Fight Club or whatever else. <laughs> um, and But it was there in that section, the off-topic section, where people would have the most interesting things to say about the article I'd recently written. And so it really kind of gave me this interesting impression that the content was important, um, but they wanted to have the conversation. People wanted to have the conversation about the content in the context of like where it fits into my overall life. People just talking about the fitness stuff is, is sort of one dimensional. And this was my first sort of uh, like look at how you can be a, a personal brand. And so I, as I was coming up in the ranks of writing in, in what's called, you know, let's call it content or authoritative exposition, uh, I was also very much in this existing community and, and becoming part of that. And, you know, I think that a lot of teen nation authors at that time, they didn't like get into the muck in the, all the, all of that stuff. They would just like write the articles and they would try to maintain this position of authority. And I was, I was playing in both sandboxes and it's just always, 
been like that for me. And, and I enjoyed that. And so when I started writing blogs, I was able to merge those two voices because I didn't have to have a lot of consideration for the, you know, the publishing constraints of a, of a magazine. And that was what created this takeoff for my stuff. The quality of the writing was certainly higher than the average uh, and the storytelling, but it was also the way that I presented the information. I could, you know, if I'm going to, uh, one of my early articles was about um, how red meat can be good for you and all the different ways. And, and I wrote it as a story from how I, I went on a, a bro date with one of my very good friends, Josh, and we went to this fancy steakhouse on a Thursday night. And there were, you know, that was, it was like ladies night. And so we're seated and there's two beautiful women in their forties next to us. And they're, they're flirting with us the whole time and they're, they're eating salads and they're just like, how do you stay in such good shape eating this red meat? And so the conversation that we had with them at this dinner was about the benefits of red meat, because for whatever reason, that seemed like a good thing to do. So the, the, the blog post became, this is the story of how that happened. And people really enjoyed that. And so just over time, it developed into, I'm happy to have the conversation, but I'm also happy to have the conversation about how weird these conversations are. And it just got more and more meta. And that's also how I've always lived my life. One, one thing, you know, back in the, I, I, don't, I don't experience awkward moments. I watch people and it seems very, very strange, but I've, I don't experience awkwardness in my own life. Whatever, whatever that is, I, I don't have it. And... Um, so all of the moments where people seem to feel very uncomfortable or, or where they where it could be uncomfortable, I like to narrate those out loud because it's very <laughs> it's very interesting to me where I will be like, you seem like you're very uncomfortable and tell me about that. And in particular, this used to happen when I was when I was dating a lot. And, you know, when I was living back home on Long Island and I would um pick up you know i'd be i'd be dropping a woman off at home and we'd be like three blocks from her place and i was like okay so we're almost at your place i'm gonna drop you off at your door and i want you to know that uh when we get there i'm not gonna kiss you and it's not because i don't want to kiss you it's just because i don't kiss on the first date so the reason i'm telling you this is because i don't want i don't want to drop you off and then have you go inside and be like did he like me did he not like me i like you i'd love to see you again but like we don't have to do the like key dance in front of the door so i'm just i'll drop you off i'll kiss you on the cheek and then like when we get there you have between now and when i drop you off to decide if you want to like schedule a second date does that work for you <laughs> and people would be so it, it it just immediately created this this ease and this comfort around this is a weird thing that everyone does that we like play in this sort of uncomfortable dance and just calling it out you don't have to do that and um and and just bringing that into my writing and and being able to comment on the industry has always been just really amusing for me and um I guess, yeah, breaking the fourth wall is is a good way to put it. So I really like done that. that approach as well. Because you're right, like it, that, that's an instant polarizer, isn't it? They're, they're like, right, you've got until I drop you off to decide if you want a second date. Because that's either going to completely diffuse the situation, make it funny, you, you break the ice and then things get better. Or if it makes things more awkward, which there's a small chance it can do, then you immediately know that actually this person's ice is so thick that I probably don't want to be like, if I can't make this kind of comment with them, like... And, and I imagine you make these comments quite frequently. It's going to be a like it's going to be a very weird experience if she's always just like oh, don't know how to react to that. <laughs> so, the, what's interesting about what you said there is that by doing that and kind of being one of the the front runners, and I think you've always kind of been a front runner in each of the like um, stages of of the evolution that we've seen you in. Um, that by doing that, it's given you license 
to then shift the type of content you're doing and people still follow you. And because it's, it's not kind of kept you in the like, I am the shoulder rehab guy or I am the kind of rapid fat loss guy or whatever. And we definitely found the same thing that once we stepped out of the laboratory and, you know, in our content and took it out of being really kind of clinical and like, and just made it a little bit more of a storytelling, more character involved in it, people really responded well to it. And I think it's, I guess it's partly the vulnerability, partly the fact that, as you said, like it takes it into the off topic forum of their, of their lives a little bit. And so by doing that, I suppose what you're doing is buying the option to then move into new fields without having to then rebuild an an audience from scratch again. I think the way I tend to look at it is I am an artist and that's what I've always been. My writing is my art. The thing that I happen to be writing about at any given moment is the content of the art, but it's the way that I produce it that is unique to me. And in that way, uh, I have a lot of friends who are, let's say, actors or musicians. And um, the the thing that they produce is, you know, it's a single it's a single piece of art. Right. And so you if you come to really love um, Denzel Washington, for example, then it's like you, you're bought into, I'm going to like him in whatever he's in. And so you'll follow him from movie to movie to movie. And he doesn't have to be just an action star where, you know, like there are people who are like primarily action stars. Like, you know, you go see an Arnold movie, you pretty much know what you're going to get, you know, Arnold movies in the mid eighties. Um, and then there are, there are people who are repeatedly sort of the same character in Samuel different Jackson. contexts. <laughs> Yes, like Samuel L. Jackson or or like Seth Rogen, right? It's like you always know what you're getting with Seth Rogen. He's kind of like a chubby, funny stoner guy. And we're, let's just see how he reacts. How is the chubby, funny stoner Seth Rogen? What is he like if we put him uh, in a in a situation where he is now party to the assassination of Kim Jong-un like that's versus like what if he gets some girl pregnant versus what happens to Seth Rogen when the world is ending and this is the end and it's it's just like we want to see Seth Rogen in different things similarly you have Ryan Reynolds who's basically been playing Van Wilder for 20 years Deadpool is just Van Wilder with swords and we're all in on that so sometimes depending on the artist you're like I want to see them do vastly different things and you could be bought into that other times it's, I want to see that artist in a new situation and see how they react. And so when I'm on social media, I, I am the artist, John Romanello, and the it's me, the person reacting in, this is how he interacts with the fitness industry. This is how he interacts with the business coaching space. This is how he interacts in like, you know, the political world or whatever else. But then when I produce a piece of content, the voice will be, changed and the art will be different it can be um you know it can be very like stately and highbrow writing and very very thoughtful um it can be very salesy like copywriting it can be very funny and silly and teaching and so i get to be the you know you get to see how this artist acts in like this seth rogan or or, you know what ryan reynolds is a better analog i think you get to see you know how this person as John acts in these different industries, like what's the general behavior. But then when I produce an individual piece of content, it's how, you know, I, I can, I can write it differently and the art itself uh, stands out. And that's how I've always looked at it. And um, 
I know a lot of other people who do as well. Like when Craig and I used to collaborate, Craig Malentine uh, used to collaborate on, you know, making when we would sell our, our e-products and he would make a bonus to promote my course, we would write them. He always talked about it like being like musicians doing remixes and collabs on each other's, on each other's albums. And I thought that was a good way to look at it. So I, I think that when you become a personal brand, of some kind to the extent that I have. And then you make these pivots. It's how does this character interact in these different environments? And then the individual things you create are, that's the opportunity to present something in, you know, that is more self-contained and you, and directed, whether it is uh, more, more intellectual or, or sillier. How has the industry changed or what's uh, rather, what's been your, driver of making the shifts to what your kind of core offering is has that been market-led or has it been more to do with like the changes in in your own tendencies and what you've been interested in and you taking the audience along for that journey i would say closer to the latter i i think that there is some influence uh of the market on what i maybe offer or the presentation of the offer itself but mostly it's my own uh, alignment. By the time I started my first business coaching offering, which I think was in 2014, I had been producing fitness content for 12 years. I had my first piece published in 2002. I'd written 500 articles, a thousand newsletters, a best-selling book, eight eBooks. And I had kind of said what I needed to say. And so there were two factors there. There was factor one, which was I kind of wanted to just talk about anything else. It got to that point where, you know, you know, like when you're a fitness guy and you go to a party and people find out you're a fitness guy and now all they want to do is talk oh. about their diet. So and I, it's the worst. I, thing. I do seven seven reps of incline bench and then and then I do superset with with the renegade rose and then I have two scoops of strawberry with with rolled oats and you're like mate like <laughs> I'm off I want to talk about like anything else. And so I kind that became kind of the overall feeling in my life because I I have always been a person as you noted who shared so much of my life on the internet. Um you know there were things that were that were a little more private until after but you know so you sort of get to that point where like I don't want this to be the only thing that I am or the only thing people associate with me and the longer I'm here the more I need to uh, the harder it's going to be to make that change. And I was also very excited about business. I, you know, I had, because I had generated so much income with these launches and everything, I was, I was being, I was an angel investor. I was consulting for all these other companies and my ego very much wanted to be recognized for that. Um, and so there was a part that wanted to step away more sort of ethically and philosophically and altruistically. I recognized that by, by staying in the fitness space, I was taking up room at the top of the ladder by virtue of the things I'd achieved and my name and my business and the weight they carried. I was sitting on this, you know, I look at it as like a pantheon of, of like big fitness names, you know, along the, the, the Eric Cressy's and the, you know, the Tony Gentlecores and whomever else. And I was looking at someone like Eric and like Eric like still reads research all the time. He is learning and he is getting better. I'm getting better at coaching. I'm getting better at writing. I'm, I'm, but I'm not really bringing new techniques in. What I do is getting more refined, but by and large, like my, it's set. 
I'm not going to go out and fundamentally in, you know, I'm not going to go out and search for this new method that's going to invert what I do. And so I recognize that when there are people who are actively trying to learn more and get better, and then there's me and I'm like, no, I'm kind of good where I am. It was not okay for me. It was not ethically clean to continue occupying space at the forefront of the industry because there was somebody, some young man or woman or, or, or some person who was like actively trying to get better every day, actively trying to learn every day, who might not be able to rise in the ranks because the, that conversation was being clouded by someone like me. And I didn't want to overstay my welcome. And so the shift made a lot of sense for me emotionally because I was like, I'm ready to stop talking about this stuff. But also it also it made a lot of sense for the industry. Those were the two factors. Then there was this there was an unknown third factor for me that I didn't even know was happening because I got out at the right time because the shift really went from blogs and newsletters and affiliate marketing because then like, boom, here came YouTube and I got out. YouTube was happening while I was in it, but it was like Scooby and a bunch of, <laughs> you know, and, and then all of a sudden it was this insane, insane explosion of people like my now partner, Amanda Bucci and Emily Hayden and Emily Duncan and Brian DaCosta and all of these people um, um, uh, from Alphalete. Um, uh, what's his name? Alphalete Knox. Um, Jeff, Alphalete, um, oh, Christian, no, no, no. Christian Guzman, and oh, okay. all of these people who built like incredible platforms and then they jumped over to Instagram. So it became much less driven by like Facebook newsletters, Google affiliate marketing, and then just like driven Instagram and YouTube. So I made that switch at like the right time because in much the same way that I came into blogging and affiliate marketing on, you know, as, as that particular roller coaster was was rising up that that track those people came in at the right time as well and came in with with huge huge audiences so i i really like the fact that i got out when i did because otherwise i would have been competing with these people you know as everything switched over to instagram i would have been competing with people in an arena that was very very different i was used to creating long form content five thousand word articles and people oh, reading every yeah. one. And here comes Instagram where you have 2,200 characters. And, um, you know, like I was never going to learn how to like produce well-edited videos. It wasn't going to be my thing. I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. So I, I, it, the switch came at the right time. And then um, I was in the business coaching realm specifically, the mastermind realm, for about three years. And then I wanted to do more writing. And so that shift happened a little bit more slowly. And to just kind of wrap this up and let you comment, <clears throat> you asked how much of it was influenced by the industry itself and the marketplace. Had I offered writing coaching in 2015, nobody would have done it. Had I, but when I started offering it in 2018, more specifically, it became very popular because I think people needed to spend those four years learning business. Um, and then there had to be enough people who saw how their writing was shitty to then fund or, or, or to fill that, that offering. Whereas if I had just, I would have been screaming into the void at first. And the, and the way I liken it is when I first started doing online fitness coaching was 2007. Um, every single time I talked to someone about it, I had to sell them on the concept first. First, I had to walk them through, no, it's okay. We're never going to meet in person. No, I'm not going to like watch you work out on Skype. I'm going to write programs for you. You're going to do them and you're going to check in. So I had to make two sales. The first was tell them the concept 
and sell them that. And once they got there, then I had to sell them on how I could help them. Whereas by 2011, there was complete ubiquity. Everyone knew what online fitness coaching was. So I only had to sell them that. And so if I had started the writing coaching in 2015, I would have really been screaming just to be heard about why the writing is so very important. Whereas by 2018, that sale was much less difficult. And then in terms of why it should be me, I was one of the few people offering it anyway. And so it, so the marketplace did dictate the offer in, in that regard. There's, there's, I think there's three, three things there, which like a, a lot of it comes down to, as you said, like doing the right thing at the right time. And it does seem like the internet has gone through, or is continuing to go through these cycles where as people's attention spans have become more and more eroded over the last 10 years, let's say, and now where no one reads long form fitness blogs. And if you try and play that game, the same guy that would have flown in 2008 just wouldn't gain traction now. Um, you know, the fact we're even moving to like TikTok, like another level of short attention span. But I totally resonate with what you said about, so we're, we're kind of similar in that we've said all that we want to say in fitness. I think, yeah, similar 500 articles, 500 videos on the YouTube channel, might even be a thousand, but some of them are like short stuff. And we're like, well, there has to be a point of enough in, in your head where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm actually satisfied with this. Like I could go one level deeper and start talking about like labrum tears or um, leucine metabolism or something that really like no one cares about, but it's just because you've exhausted all the other topics. So you're like, well, now I've just got to like try and go a level deeper in the, the technical side of it, which, which like only really appeals to other personal trainers who think that that's what they should be writing about too. Mm. So moving into a more of a, a blue ocean um, strategy where you are the, rather than having to compete and because there was always going to be someone who was like a Wikipedia editor and has written the definitive encyclopedic piece on Lucene or on whatever. And so trying to create another one of those just doesn't, doesn't work. And so, as you said, like imbuing your personal brand into that means that suddenly not only can you talk about more stuff, and be a multidimensional person online as well. But people can then engage with you and actually um, follow you for something that you no longer have to be the, you, you no longer have to write the definitive article on protein or on something like that. So yeah, that's, that is interesting. The, the only thing that I think we're probably more idealistic about is that um, I do think that there is space for everyone in the industry rather than having these like um pinnacle people that are kind of taking up space in the industry i, I realize at some point like everyone's got a coach and then there's no more space for for new coaches but um in the sense that people buy coaches it no longer has to be a case where like oh well he's written the best article on that thing or the best bit of content so nothing more to be done i think that it's yeah, I mean, people don't buy coaching, they buy coaches, as I said back in 2009. Um, I, but I think that the, as you get into a more niche area, there is a little bit less space for fewer people. And I look at it like fitness is very much like a young man's game, you know, and there it, there does seem to be room for 25,000 25 to 30 year old ripped guys who can help other guys get ripped. But once you get past like the fitness over 40, it's like it, there is less, it, the mountaintop starts to narrow and there is less room for something that 
niche. And then, you know, you, you, in the injury prevention world, you've got the Cressies, the Russins, they're just, it's, there are fewer and fewer people for two reasons. One, the more niche you get in a place that's more technical and mechanical, the, you do need to have a long stretch of, of great technical content. Um, but two, it just, it requires a, a, a more, a deeper conversation that a lot of people don't want to have. So yeah, I think if you're in like gen pop fitness for most people there, there's plenty of room for everyone because really it is, it's all blue ocean because people don't necessarily want the best article on leucine. They want your article on leucine and that's fine. I just think when you, when you get into other areas, it's, it's harder. Something I wanted to ask you, John, just religious circling back to, what we were talking about at the start when i think of the fitness industry in like the the time we're talking about so when you were doing all of these launches and things like that i imagine it like one of the scenes in goodfellas where you know like they walk into the bar and it's like oh hey look, there's john barati and like john barati's like hey look, you know there's chris sugar there's nate green like everyone like knows each other mm-hmm. i feel like you must have a funny story from that era of time I, I mean, all of my, I, I like to think all of my stories are funnier. Well, least I'm, I'm but, funny enough to make them funny, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, yeah, certainly there are there. I'm, I, I, it would be, I'd be hard pressed to think of one offhand, but um, the, yeah, I, I just, all of the, all of the great times, like traveling with Nate Green, who is, you know, just such an incredible person and Berardi, who was really like my first mentor. One of my favorite stories about John Berardi is that, uh, he accidentally taught me how to take care of people, which is to say I had a very sort of basic, I, you know, I'd written like one or two articles for T Nation and I was like, yeah, now we're like on the same level. John was like eight years older than me. We were all <laughs> a little bit in love with John Berardi. He was just like, he was the guy. And uh, so when I started like moving towards competition, I would, you know, I was working on my posing without ever asking for consent. I would send John pictures of myself in my underwear. And I was like, any feedback would be appreciated. And it wasn't until I started until like 10 years later when I was creating content and people would do shit like that to me. Like, oh, I'm that that I was like, oh my God, this poor man, his endless patience with me, giving me feedback, introducing me to, uh, you know, like Greg Avedon and, and, um, you know, a couple of people to just like, here's where you can go for like some fitness modeling stuff. Um, it's why I always pay it forward. And whenever, you know, I really well into the latter part of my fitness career for, you know, if, if you really look at, at the online fitness stuff, starting when I was 26, even though I'd been writing since I was 20, but like 2009, really when I started RomanFitnessSystems.com, all the way up to, let's say, 35, 34, 35. So from 2009 to like 2015, um, I would, I would respond to just about any email or DM with any ridiculous question because it was like, it's what John Berardi would do. And, uh, so because I, I sent him pictures of myself in my underwear, I then realized down the line, I have to be willing to put up with whatever to me seems absurd and asinine and like how could anybody be majoring in this kind of minutia how can this possibly matter uh when someone's asking a question about like oh it was like if, if i drink you know if i put one splint in my coffee is it gonna break my fast is everything gonna fall apart I'd, i would just like take the time to to answer that 
Um, so I don't think I don't know if that's a particularly funny story, other than no, just I, like a lesson learned. But there, there so are plenty for sure. I think the, the more people we speak to who've kind of really made a name for themselves in the industry, the more that particular thing. Like for a period of my life, I replied to every single email. Mm. Keeps coming up in conversation. It's one of those things that, like nobody wants to hear that because it's yeah. awful. The concept of that, especially when you're getting. I don't know how many emails, but quite a few, I assume. Yeah, was, yeah. at some point it was a couple of hundred a week and I was like in my inbox. But it was also, you know, I look back at it now and, and having done all of this personal development work, I can acknowledge that there was a part of me that got off on the idea that like <laughs> this many people care about what I have to say. And mm-hmm. I don't I don't ever like part of that's ego, but I also don't ever want to lose that. I don't ever want to lose the excitement and this feeling that like it is nuts that pe- that this many people care about what I have to say, that I can help this many people. And I think that's really cool. I think it's, you know, what we do is so, it's so fun. And cool. So I actually, go ahead. I was just, just related to that. I actually, I think asked you a question in like the T Nation forums and you got back to me like in less than a day. And I, this is like, again, this is, do you remember, I remember like Professor X and like yeah. a lot of like the big names in the, yeah. and everyone was like worried, like, oh, what did he say? Um, but yeah, I asked you a question. You got back to me like the same day. Uh, that's just, so there you go. That's proof. Thanks. That you did. Seeing that thing of um, like that image of John Berardi you've painted, I can totally believe that. He just seems like such an exceptionally lovely man. Um, <laughs> he's so great, John. So yeah. he's so great. I love the man to death. Like I'd run through a, to this day, I'd run through a wall for Berardi. Like I, you know what? Here's a here's a fucking hilarious story about John Berardi. <laughs> Which is he just would like at some various points he would be talking about his his diet or whatever, and I would read it and be like, well, that's what I'm doing now. And so John, like, I would eat shit I did not like at all, and John was always going on about omega threes, and he was like living up in Canada, and so he was talking about he would eat cans of sockeyed salmon, and I was like, I don't even know where to get. So I'd have to go to specialty health food stores, and I'd get canned salmon. I don't even like regular salmon, and I was eating canned salmon and hating it and i was like no i was like it's um, this is gonna be good for me and there was this other thing he said where he was talking about eating a pound of raw spinach a day Uh, and and so i was like that's what i do now and so there was a three-week period at least where i was eating a pound of raw spinach per day and the urgency with which i would have to run to the bathroom is it, it was startling and it was just frequent. And I was like, this is, I'm going to get so shredded just from the abdominal contraction of bowel movements. And I was, it was just unbelievable. I was like, this is, this is a whole other like part of life that I like didn't think of. I went from like using the bathroom twice a day regularly to using it six times a day, three of which were like very urgent. And, <laughs> it, it, and I was like, all right, man, variety has got to be onto something. This will normalize at some point. And it, it did, but there was, yeah, it, there was just like three weeks where I was like, this is, this is horrific. Just like um, straight out of the bag or? How did you, uh, I, yeah, I would saute some of it, but it was like I was having two okay. big salads a day, and um, then I would be putting it in my my omelet, and then uh, I did. There was like a handful in one of my shakes, um, and yeah. it was it was quite a lot. T Nation has really informed a lot of my awful decisions in terms of like and and then and then you're right you get the canned salmon and then you see in the article oh no it has to be alaskan but it has to be blessed by this special tibetan monk and it has to only be from this lineage and and, and then like oh but it's yeah. only if it's micronized and it's german and and yeah. you down this rabbit hole of like but i need the, the special thing to get me shredded yeah and it'll change everything for you and that's, that's kind of in the interest of fitness and then you had uh you know it reminds me of a video you put up ages ago 
with someone that came up to you in a club and was like, yo, oh, dude, like, what do you think about diet, <laughs> about diet Coke? Yeah, yeah I, I was, I, I yeah, drink that, that shit. Yeah, somebody said, yeah, I, I ordered, a, I, I wasn't really drinking a lot of alcohol at this point in my life. And so I ordered, this guy ordered, we were just at a fitness conference and he, he, so we go to the bar and he orders red wine with his resveratrol and whatever other shit in there. And I order a diet Coke and he starts like excoriating me on <laughs> because I'm putting this, these artificial sweeteners in my body. Like and then, oh my God. You yeah, like, yeah. And then like, like 40 minutes later, I go in the bathroom and see him doing blow. <laughs> this is amazing. Um, which seemed, which seemed like really incongruous to me at the time. Now I think I could reconcile it a bit more easily, right? You just like pick your poison. If you're going to just, if you're going to be putting narcotics in your body with like any sort of regularity to some people that might disqualify you from having an opinion on diet soda, but to other people, it might be like, well, this is the area where I'm going to play in the unhealthy stuff. So I'm going to all of the other shit you know, that I can avoid easily because it might in aggregate have some sort of negative effect, I will do that. So at the time, it absolutely seemed mind boggling that somebody could hold these two, you know, very, very disparate sort of uh, very strong opinions at the same time. But now I see that most of us are living in states of constant cognitive dissonance and, and almost everything that we do is making up for some other area. And so like when people make fun of people, you know, you go to McDonald's and you get the burger and the fries and then the Diet Coke. It's like, That's I mean, understandable, already, though. Yeah, it's like you're already getting a burger and fries. Why would you add another thousand calories to that? That's a very um, low-hanging fruit, yeah. Like, we, we shared right. something earlier today of um, someone on Twitter that was like, I, I refuse to, to be controlled by this mask nonsense. Like, we didn't evolve with the mask. If, we, if it was really needed by um, the human body, then we would evolve with, like, a built-in mask since this is bollocks. And the guy responded being like, Nick, do you wear shoes? Mm-hmm. It's like, Same, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. how do you, how do you reconcile that stuff? So yeah, I suppose like looking at the relative contribution of those things. Um, the other thing you mentioned, John, was uh, this like sense of uh, validation from hundreds of people wanting your opinion. And I think this is something that I personally struggle with because like, I, I still, I still do two jobs basically. So I, I work, as a doctor in a hospital during the day and I do propane in my, in the rest of my time. And throughout both of those jobs, you're just in constant, like you, you turn up in the ward and you've got like four nurses will like grab a limb each and they'll be like, Oh doctor, can you, doctor, can you, this patient is not about, and then, and you walk, and then you walk past like a patient's family and they'll be like, Oh doctor, can you, and, and you're just, you're spending the whole day just under siege. And then you get home and you open your laptop and it's the same thing. You're just getting like pounded with people wanting a bit of you for something. And in a way, like, I think just having a bit of space and like occasionally if, if I just shut off for a while, I'm like, do you know what? Like, I need to stop and smell the roses that like being in demand, although I resent it at the time, like, it's a nice thing. It shows that you have some value to add. Yeah, is there a question hidden in there? No, it's just, a, it's just something I struggle with. I'm, I'm just venting. <laughs> Well, I'm happy. I'm happy to hold space and hear it. But I, I do think that for anyone who is producing a lot of content, particularly if you are at a, a level or in a position where you're getting a lot of emails asking that, or a lot of a lot of DMs or, or a lot of interaction, um, it's very natural to let your ego sort of play with it and and it be validating and the it it can 
and that's fine. I mean, it can encourage you. Your ego is a very important thing. It can encourage you to keep going and keep producing to get more of that validation. Uh, you just have to not let it do the, the gymnastics that egos can do and make you think you're more important. So it's, it's always been very helpful for me. I'm very lucky that I have four really close friends uh, with whom I've been friends since I was 16 or 17 years old. And they knew me not just before I had a business or a book or, you know, a blue check mark. They knew me before I was fit. They knew me when I like changed college majors three times. And I'm very lucky that we have a very, a very positive relationship where they've always encouraged me and always been my biz- biggest fans. But it, uh, there's, there's stuff that they, that they have in terms of our connection. And I don't mean like pieces of information where they could blackmail me, but just the way that we interact, it's like, they're proud of me, but at the same time, it's like, they're they're not impressed by me. And it's, it's very much like, like Batman having kryptonite, you know, for Superman. It's just like, at the end of the day, you're, you ain't shit. You know, you're, 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 we're all in this together. And And that's that's a really really important dynamic to have with friends. Cause I think if there's any sense of hierarchy, then, you're not you're not connecting authentically you're not you're not communicating properly so that yeah that for me it's really really important to have that those like old school friends who knew me well before i had any of it but it's equally important and i don't i don't talk about this a lot um because it's a champagne type problem but if you get to a certain level of success you will need other people who can relate to champagne problems and they're is there, you know, the way that I, I live my life and the way that it's structured, sometimes things come up that I'm like, this is a ridiculous problem to have, but I, I need someone I can talk to about it. And when you are, you know, running seven figure businesses and you have seven figure problems, it, you can't talk to your friends who make, you know, 80K a year because they, they can't really understand. And they're just going to so, be like, oh, poor, poor you. And you're like, no, seriously, like, like it's, <laughs> I'm just- it, I'm, I have to figure this out. It's a problem. And so it's, you know, the, the, one of the advantages of being in like masterminds or, or business coaching groups is you have other people who can just listen and, you know, they, they can, you know, when you're at a place where like, I don't know whether or not I should shut this down or scale it or, um, you know, I'm in this weird position where like, I, okay, I want to buy this property and I think it's going to be good long term, but I'd have to take, you know, 200 grand out of this, uh, this other investment. And you just need someone who's, who can advise you in a really objective way. Uh, you need to have that. And, and, you know, it, it filters into the personal life stuff when, you know, when I, when I was being uh, a lot more active in my dating life with my, with my, um, you know, polyamorous relationships and, you know, I'd, to, to the outside world, it's like, oh, poor guy. He's like juggling these women. But for me, I was like, I actually, I need to have these hard conversations or I don't have time for myself. And you need to be able to speak to people who can, who can give you like real feedback. And so I'm very, very lucky that in terms of staying grounded uh, and not being like a creature of pure ego, I do have these old friends who knew me from way back when. And I'm also able to have you know, a network of people who make so much more money than me that, that, you know, it dwarfs what I do. And, uh, that, that keeps me humble in a different way. And, and it's really important. That's an interesting point. And I remember on the last podcast, when you mentioned this polyamorous relationship and you said like, I'm in a, a, a triangle relationship and yeah. you know, I'm sure a lot of guys would be like, Oh, sweet. Like, but the first thing that came to both me and Johnny's mind was like, Oh, the admin, like, can you imagine like trying to, <laughs> trying to maintain that and and actually all the 
the, the extra variables that throws in. So mm. yeah, I've no doubt that just because something seems like good on the surface, there are a whole layer of problems that come with it. That how how do you reconcile um, being able to produce like you know you to produce kind of prolific amounts of of content and go deep with stuff with the fact that you must always kind of face this um endless barrage of inboxes and incoming messages and and your team i imagine demands on your time as well i go back to neil gaiman who in his 2012 commencement speech at the university of the arts said the world will the the problems of success are real. And uh, first he talks about imposter syndrome, but then he says the other problem with success that nobody warns you about is that the world will conspire against you to keep you, the world will conspire to keep you from doing what you do because you are successful. And then he goes on to say, there was a point at which I real I looked up and realized I had become someone who professionally replied to email and who wrote as a hobby. I started replying to fewer emails and was relieved to find I was writing much more. And whenever I am at a point where I am doing too much reactivity and not enough proactivity, I simply make the shift. And I maybe put up an autoresponder and I, and I will put that quote in it. And I, I notice that reactivity is for me a really exciting place to hide because writing books in which I'm like balls deep in four different books right now, um, two of which I have now scrapped and started to rewrite twice each and doing big projects. Um, it's tough. It's a slog. You don't get validation until it's finished. You can write a book every day for five years and it doesn't matter how good it is. It's, you don't get anything for it until it's out in the world. Whereas if somebody sends you an email and you take 40 minutes and write a very thoughtful reply and you can change that person's day or week or month or potentially life, you get something back immediately. This bottle that you're responding to in this vast ocean comes back to you, Phil, to, to quote Gaiman, with money or admiration or love. <clears throat> and it's very easy to fall victim to setting your life up as one that benefits from reactivity. And for that, it can be responding to a lot of emails and getting validation or doing a lot of consultations and getting paid, working with a lot of clients and helping people on the smaller scale instead of something during which I, like, let's say I create a course, like the copywriting course I just released that was very, very time intensive. It's, it, you know, I have, I have a, a, a module in there, a, a video training on headlines that's three and a half hours long. It's the Lord of the Rings of headline modules. And, you know, this, this course is like nine modules long. There is at least one training of an hour in every single one, but most of them have two to three trainings of 60 to 90 minutes each, which meant that like, you know, let's say for every hour of content in there, it's probably five or six hours of planning and creating the, the outline and then recording. So all told, you know, creating this course is maybe a hundred, a hundred hours. And, um, 
you don't get anything for it until it's out in the world as it now is. And then there's this sales page I wrote for it, which is, is, is 15,100 words long. And that takes a lot of time. And then I have to promote the thing. But the sales page that did look like it took ages to make. uh, Really nice. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I probably should have outsourced more of the design of it, but I, I got really into it and I'm like, really, I love playing with Canva. But the, the main thing is like, I take a lot of time with my sales pages in general because it's writing, but also if you're going to sell a course on how to write sales pages, it's got to be a really dope sales page. Yeah. So it took longer than it would be for like, if I were going to sell a course on, I, I'm, I'm, I got to have one released at the end of the year. That's um, really like uh, persuasion. And so that's going to be that, that sales page will be less involved. But um, <clears throat> it would have been very easy for me to continue to put off this course on um, on copywriting and just take clients and respond. So that's it's very reactive. It's uh, Terry Crews once said, "Success is the warmest place to hide," and you can de- determine or, or define ses- success in, in however many ways. But one of those is like validation and the feeling of, of like that you did good work, and the desire to just get feedback is very strong. And so it is, for some people, it is the case that all of that incoming stuff to which you can respond feels overwhelming. And like, how do I reconcile that against, or how does an individual reconcile that against needing to produce and be prolific? Um, for, For other people, it's recognizing that each one of those incoming things is an opportunity to hide and to not do the thing that's that's hard to get up and spend two hours in the morning producing 500 words in a book or three hours in the middle of the day working on a course. And it's, it's really just um, seasons. There are some points at which I am more responsive and other times when I'm more proactive. I happen to be in a more proactive stage right now because I've created that. Whereas in the first part of the first three months of quarantine, I was more, I was more reactive and there's, there's a, there is a challenge to that dance and you see what works for you. But I consistently have to remind myself that at the end of my life, I would much rather be someone who wrote a few great books than a lot of great emails. And that is sort of how I have to reconcile it. And I love the fact that people email me and reach out and they DM me, um, Every single email that I respond to, I, I put my heart into, and ideally I can use that content elsewhere. But the idea of responding one email to one person who changes their life, that is amazing. But how many, how many lives can you change with a book? This is, something I've heard, this is something I've heard Tim Ferriss talk about before, this idea of like letting, letting small fires burn when it comes to dealing with, you know, I could do these 30 things that are kind of feel pressing and feel urgent and everyone's like throwing at me, or I could do this one thing that I don't get anything from until this time next year. And I think everyone wants the, I feel like a lot of productivity advice is, is trying to tell people ways to, to do everything at once and it'll all be okay. When actually the real answer is you just have to not reply to the email or like not check social media or as you say, switch, make that switch between, reactivity and proactivity and do the thing that's the long-term play yeah 
And, and it, it obviously depends on how your life and your business is set up. There's some people for whom there, there is no immediate long-term play that they're working toward. And it becomes very easy to just be in the, you know, like a lot of, a lot of business coaches and success coaches, the entirety of their business is the treadmill. It's the hamster wheel. You produce mm. content, you get clients, you work with the clients, they give testimonials, put the testimonials out, you run a launch and, and it's great. And it can make you a lot of money, but, um, you know, the, the long-term thing that you're ideally the, the content that you're producing has long-term value. And that, that's something that I try to teach my writing clients and my business coaching clients and my copywriting clients, because there are, you know, you, you two have been longtime readers of, of my content. There are what were blog posts on, on Roman fitness systems that I would now refer to as articles that, to this day, they're still up on RFS and they still bring traffic to that site and still get opt-ins and still put them into some type of funnel where they'll eventually be, you know, pitched to a low price product. And, um, we actually, you know, I have a team like kind of revamping and, and building that out as a, as a more directed traffic and content site. But those things from 10 years ago, that is long-term value that, you know, if, if I can, if that can generate income and kind of do its that, if that hamster wheel can run by itself, then I can do the long-term stuff that requires me. And uh, that that's always been more interesting to me. It's about making peace, I suppose, with the fact that you will have to go into the bunker and take the hit on those kind of easy forms of dopamine, easy forms of, um, feeling like you're kind of yeah knocking out some of those moles that are coming up and saying right i'm going to go in and do this and it's not going to be immediately rewarding but i'm going to have something that is a positive flywheel long term yes yeah well put we want to talk about constant we need we need paddles or something don't we yeah this is a first world problem that we need to um (laughs) we need to address as well like oh when we're on a three-way podcast like we never know who who's next person to speak but very few people would understand that. Problem. Have that problem? Yeah. Who do you, who do you chat to about that problem? Other small list podcasters. Other podcasters. Yeah. Get them on a two way interview yeah. and see what they How do. They do? I assume it can just be as simple as like raising your hand and <laughs> indicating to the other people on the video you have a, a thing you'd like to interview yeah. where the topic gets changed. That's too simple, though, John. We'll we'll probably make it too complicated and have kind of a signaling system or yeah. Code. What I what I think you should do, and this is this is what I'd like for the next two years from now. I would like this system in place. So I'm going to suggest this not only to you but all other podcasters. What I would like is for some enterprising individual to come up with a relay system that has a low grade electric shock. We can probably use Pavlock for this. That's a company in which I'm invested. A low grade electric shock that let's say you press a button. And the other person is shocked on their wrist and or their or wherever that, you know, it could be their thigh, their neck. And it is alerting that person to the fact that I will be the next person to speak. And so such a power move. (laughs) Technology is there. And uh, we just it just needs to be have a system. system You can get those um, remote vibrators that you put into your bum or or your other other offices. And yeah. yeah. And you can just, yes, you could just like keep that in your pocket or your bum, whatever, Um, (laughs) however you want to do it. Which is, which is just really nature's pocket as, as all, (laughs) as all criminals know, your butt is just nature's pocket. So it can either be like a reward for speaking at the right time or punishment depending on preferences and all that sort of stuff. However, your, your, uh, you know, arousal structure is made. Well, there's the trailer for the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) uh, you, You had another question. Yeah, so we, I don't, we don't want to take up much more of your time, John, but I, I do want to ask you about copywriting. 
Um, yeah. So I, the sales page, I won't say I've read all 15,000 words. I've read a good portion of it. I think it's the best sales page I've ever read. Seriously. I, I think it's the best page I've, I've ever written. Um, and so I appreciate that. Uh, thank you. So a lot of people listening will be either in the fitness industry presently mm. or considering moving into the fitness industry in some capacity. And probably, because I, I can clearly remember when I felt this way, either not really sure what, like is copywriting that thing when I use the wrong music on my YouTube channel and someone <laughs> sends me an email or, you know, why, why should I care mm. about copywriting as a skill? Copywriting is when we talk about copy or copywriting, um, uh, which is C-O-P-Y-W-R-I-T-E. Um, any, the word copy in that sense can mean any sort of pre-written material that serves a purpose. So like when uh, a news anchor is on TV reading from the teleprompter, that is the, what they're reading is called copy. But in the, in the marketing sales, the fitness world, when we talk about sales copy, we're talking specifically about words written to sell a product or a service. And this is very important for anyone in the fitness industry or any of the analogous industries because it is the thing that will distinctly make you money. You can be an amazing trainer or coach, but no one will know that if you can't get them to sign up with you. And one of the mistakes that has been made by every generation of online fitness pros, and I would I would divide each generation into about like two to three years. I think there were the people like 2009 to 2011, then 11 to like 13, 14, and then 14 to 17. And now this generation is like the Instagram generation, 2017 to 20. Every single generation has made this mistake where they believe that their content is enough to set them apart, which is not true because it doesn't matter how much you're teaching people. Um, and, and this happens all the time. Like I, I put out amazing content, but if you don't talk about the thing that you offer that people can pay you for, they might not even know that it exists. There were times when I was running my mastermind and which, which was my business coaching group and I wouldn't promote it a lot. And then I would, I would feature somebody from my mastermind on my, on my page of some kind. And people would, DM back like, oh my God, I didn't even know you did business coaching because I wasn't talking about it a lot. So your content is important. It has to be good. It should ideally be unique to you in the presentation, not the information. But your copy is what will convince people to pay you for the service you you provide. And if you're a fitness coach, that means either pay you to coach them or pay you for some sort of ebook or course that you have created. And when we talk about sales pages, that is the landing page on which all of the information about what you do is. And if it's just information, if it's just telling them what it is and like what you do, and it's all just like, oh, you get to email me three times a week and we'll get on a, you can have Voxer access to me. And that, that's the mistake people are making because it's just information. It is not persuasion. What sales copy does is help people understand the problem they're facing and how you can solve that problem. And then in between, it gives them all the reasons that that problem is causing them pain in their life. We call this agitating pain. And so in my new copywriting course, which is called Captivating Copy, uh, I really 
dive into all the ways you could do this with personality. And one of the things I like to say, and this is on the sales page, good copy makes people willing to buy. Great copy makes people excited to buy. And captivating copy makes people excited to buy from you. As I have said on this podcast two years ago and alluded to today, when you are in the fitness industry or any industry that is service-based, you are not doing anything fundamentally different from your competitors or contemporaries. We all draw water from the same well. Your article on intermittent fasting doesn't have information that's different from my article on intermittent fasting. So it's not the information that you need to worry about, but the presentation. In a fitness industry, you're helping people look better, feel better, perform better, some variation or combination of those three things. And when people are deciding what article to read, a lot of it is the personality-driven writing. And then when people are deciding which coach, because again, people don't buy coaching, they buy coaches, your sales copy is the thing that can move them into, yes, Johnny is the right guy for me. Yusuf is the right guy for me. Roman is the right guy for me. And in captivating copywriting, I tell you explicitly how to do this. It's, it's a, it's a, you know, a very detailed course. And if you are a fitness pro, uh, you should buy this. Um, not because it necessarily gives me money, although it does, the course is on sale for, uh, it's available for purchase. I don't want to say it's on sale because the price is the price. Um, it's just under a thousand bucks. It's $997. And here is what I will say to you. If you are a fitness coach charging industry standard in, uh, for fitness coaching, then each client is going to be worth, uh, $200 to $350 per month. The average stick rate, if you're a decent coach, is four months. So if you're charging the low end, which is 250 and you get one client because your copy is better, then you're going to make a thousand bucks. So it pays for itself. But if you're writing good copy and you're getting one to three new clients every month, then not only are you going to be making one to 3000 extra dollars per month, but you should be able to charge more. So you should be making 15 to maybe uh, $4,500 every single month as a result of having better copy. It'll also make you a more persuasive writer. It'll, it'll filter into your content. And overall, it is a part of your business that you can't ignore. And When you transition away from fitness, should you decide to do that at some point, your skills with copy come with you. And that's why I have been able to move from fitness into business coaching, into writing coaching, into book mentorship, into writing about polyamory and psychedelics and politics uh, and other alliterative words with P and bring my audience along because it's because of the writing. And this is a course in which I teach you to do that uh, in a very personality driven way. And um, it, it's, it's, I think it's the best course on copywriting for coaches out there. There are great courses on copywriting for people who want to write copy for other people. We cover that. But this is like, if you're writing copy for your own offers, I believe that this is the best course currently available. And it's cheaper than most of them. Most are like 2000 to 20. There's one for 3500 bucks out there. Uh, I think that charging top level prices at the height of the pandemic is a little gross. So a uh, thousand felt very, very fair for like I'm being fairly compensated for my time it also allows us to scale and I think like anybody could buy this because not only is it like you'll make your money back with one fucking client there's also payment plans available so So your price justification 
on the page was very, felt very like fourth wall to me. You know, it's like, <laughs> look, this is the price. That's because it's half of what this person charges. Cause fuck yeah. him. And I was just like, you yeah, know, fair enough. Yeah, like, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, what we did was I looked at all the other copy courses available and then I picked the I picked the, the guy I like the least, who I think is kind of like the douchiest copywriting course creator. And I was like, all right, he charges like twenty two hundred, so this one is a thousand. <laughs> Fuck that. <laughs> um then if anyone has a has a query of the price, it's like, well, that was my reason. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly it. So buy it or uh, don't buy it. Yeah, I and I, I want people to buy it. So you know what I'll do? I'll we'll make it we'll make it even easier. Um, what's, uh, what we'll do is if you use, if you're listening to this podcast and you go to captivatingcopywriting.com, um, assuming the cart is still open because the enrollment does close at various points. So if you're listening to this and you go to captivating, captivatingcopywriting.com, if the cart is open, you will see that the price is nine ninety seven. Once you click add to cart, and I highly encourage you to do so on the right hand side of the, the checkout page, there will be. Uh, an option to put in a coupon code. And so if you put in code propane, um, we'll give you $100 off. So no matter when you listen to this podcast, I will also mention this podcast. Now, we can't go back and edit the podcast. So it's entirely possible if you're listening to this in 2022, the price might have increased. And so please don't hold me to the 997. At the time of this recording, which is August 12th, 2020, the price is 997. If you're listening to this years in the future and the price is now more I don't know what to tell you. Because of hyperinflation and the, yeah. the apocalypse has happened and actually 997 is now equivalent to $10 billion. Whatever it value. is. But what I can tell you is that the coupon code will always work. So <laughs> we'll set it as a lifetime coupon. No matter what, if you use, if you use code propane, you'll save a hundred bucks. That is awesome, man. Thank you. Oh, no, it's my, no, it's my pleasure to do it. I, I, I really appreciate that. Um, I have 15 minutes left for the remainder of this interview. So we can talk about anything. Ooh. Wow. wow. Okay. Well, I mean, we, we have one listener who will kill us if we don't ask you about this. And uh, it may be a bit heavy for a 15-minute um, mm. end to a podcast, but you're, you're very candid about mental health. And I think this yeah. is something that luckily has, has come into public acceptance a lot more recently, partly catalyzed by COVID, I think, by people really being wound up at home enhancing people's sense of isolation and anxiety and health fears and even OCD tendencies and also with the movements towards kind of the a few public figures public male figures that have committed suicide um and I'm glad that this is something that you're um you're being open about because I think not enough people are um can you talk to us a little bit about your your background with this and what's um what's got you to where, where it is now yeah. Um, <clears throat> I was diagnosed with uh, a major depressive disorder, cyclical depression in, uh, I don't know, the I was 17 years old. And I didn't start talking about it publicly until half my life later. So I was 34, which I believe was 2015. And I wrote my first article about it, um, my very, very long essay on my struggle with depression and suicidal ideation. As of that writing, I had made three suicide attempts. Uh, and then there has been one since then, which was in like 2017-ish, I believe. Um, 
and, and nonsense. And my depression is, I, I don't necessarily know that depression can be cured. If you had asked me three years ago, I would say like depression can't be cured. All of the work that I have done on myself to heal over the past several years has definitely affected the way that my depression manifests. I haven't had any real depressive, like deep, deep, deep depressive episodes where I have uh, experienced weeks and months of suicidal ideation. I have had days where I've been depressed and I've had suicidal thoughts pop in. But where I am right now currently is uh, feeling that a lot of the things that contributed to the depression have been addressed or resolved. Like many people, I carried a lot of guilt for things that I had done, particularly in my previous relationships where there was infidelity in my marriage. And, and I just kept like judging myself for these. So I, I decided that for my healing, it would be best if I really dove in and started to unravel why I couldn't let go of this guilt and, and, and figure out ways to do that. And then in doing so was able to <clears throat> go back further and kind of see why these actions happened and why I was, in, you know, and I think that a lot of the guilt about these things was this fear that I would recreate those behaviors or patterns. And I'm no longer in that fear. So I no longer have that guilt. And so for me, <clears throat> Treatment of depression is very much uh, something that people need to address. You can just like wait it out. Eventually the storm will pass, but that, that doesn't really help you. What I would suggest for people who are struggling with depression, particularly now, is do not isolate. Be willing to share it. If you're afraid to share it with the people in your life, share it with strangers. The thing that was the most helpful for me was I mean, sharing with people in my life and not needing to hide it anymore was very, very helpful. But support groups, because it's very hard when you are sharing with someone in your life and telling them you're experiencing depression and suicidal ideation, and they're sitting there and they're like holding you and looking at you and they want to show up for you. And they say things like, oh, thank you for telling me, like, I understand. And there's something in your head that immediately gets angry and you're like, you don't fucking understand. But being able to speak to people who do understand, people who, so support groups full of people who, experienced depression or suicidal ideation, there was something about that for me that was so very healing to just be truly understood by someone else who'd experienced it. And those are usually full of strangers. You know, it's not the people in your life. It's just other people. So, And there are a lot of those available uh, via Zoom in, in the world of, uh, you know, in the time of COVID. So the thing that I know universally does not help is just holding it inside. Whether you seek direct treatment with a therapist or whether you are going to uh, support groups of some kind or sharing with the people in your life. And I think that like, that's the, that's the trifecta. You should be doing all of those, but at least pick one and, and start working through it. And please know that my DMS are always open for people who are suffering from depression. I am available uh, as soon as I see it to, you know, to at least hear you and hold space for you. And that might, that might be enough. And if, if it is, I'm, I am 
here to do that for you. But I think that if you search mental health awareness as a, as a hashtag on any of the big social media ones, you'll see that you're not alone, that so many people suffer from this. And I don't think that misery loves company applies to mental health disorders. I think it's more the case that suffering detests loneliness. And so finding companionship, finding understanding, finding people to hear you is, it's, it's not an option. It's the only thing that will universally not make things worse and probably make things better. Whereas isolation is probably the number one thing that will over time make things harder. So whether it's a therapist, a sport group, people in your life, or just come out to the, come out to the fucking internet. Like I did just put it all out there. Um, people will be more supportive than you think. And there's going to be tons of people who don't know how to be supportive and it'll be a fun adventure to try and figure out like what you actually need from the people in your life, but it's better than suffering in silence. So that's what I would say there. We can also have the conversation about how like psychedelics have been a tremendous part of that healing journey for me. Um, but they're not required for anyone. That is a much needed voice, I think. And especially where, particularly in the UK, I don't know what the mental health system is like in the US, but waiting times are ridiculously long. And even if you do go to your GP or you, you see somebody, you know, a friend or a family member who can't relate, you either have the problem, as you said, of they, they, they haven't got the shared experience and they're not able to really hold that space. Or in, in my case, if, you know, you you've got time pressures and you've you you're you you're really seeing patients as part of a um a conveyor belt and even if you desperately want to help them and even if you can relate you just haven't got the resources and availability to um but it's it's kind of finding what are the things that are immediately accessible now for somebody to to start making that move the other thing you mentioned was you see or you you saw your depression almost as like an an alarm bell um, pointing to threads of past experiences, past behaviors, things in your life that you then started to unravel. Presumably, psychedelics have had have had some role in helping you to uncover those. Absolutely. Uh, the 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 big thing. And this is probably not the the very core of the depression, but the big big thing was unveiling or or, or sort of uncovering the fact that I had been that I experienced uh, sexual abuse as a child when I was you know, between six and eight years old at the hands of, of a relative. And wow. I uncovered that during my second ever MDMA journey. And uh, it wasn't like, I, calling it a journey is very generous. It wasn't like I was with a shaman. You know, I was like, I was taking MDMA to like party with friends and I was having a conversation and this thread came up and being held in this space of, you know, extreme sort of euphoria allowed me to uncover this thing that I had repressed for 20 some odd years. Um, and so then, you know, it took a really long time to, to, like really work through a lot of that. But one of the things that psychedelics like uh, acid and, um, and, and psilocybin and ayahuasca do is as they dissolve the ego, you really get to look at things with uh, a lot of objectivity. And when you're just in therapy and you aren't, you know, you, you can, your ego will still, it's very sneaky. It'll come in the side door, the back door, and it'll give you these reasons you did these things that are justifications. Whereas when, when that ego is dissolved or when you're deeper into, uh, into therapy and, and, you know, like you've got a great therapist, like helping you work around the ego, um, and keep the ego out of the process, you begin to see the real reason that some of these things 
happened. And once you can resolve some of that, so, you know, an example in, um, in my case, something about like uh, dishonesty in my life, particularly my romantic relationships, it kept coming up because I felt extremely unsafe to ever admit any desires or any wrongdoing because when I was young, um, there was one occasion in particular where I did something wrong and my dad just like absolutely beat the shit out of me, broke two of my ribs. And so I had this habit of like, even if there's a 1% chance of that, I'll get away with it. Tell the lie, tell the lie, because even if I'm going to get caught in the future for today, I'll be safe. And so unraveling that and then realizing like, I'm a 38 year old man, I'm 200 pounds. There's nobody in my life who was going to enact physical violence against me in any sort of way. Uh, and I could just say like, Hey, I did this thing. Uh, I fucked up. And, and, you know, most of the time people are I'm like, Oh, that, yeah. I mean, it was just, it was weird how it would manifest like little white, like white lies. Like if I was going to be late to something, I'd have to concoct this, story and instead of just being like hey i was irresponsible and running late and just like let that be a thing because instead this fear of being perfect but it really manifested in my um in my romantic life where i'd have these desires that i wouldn't feel safe to share and then eventually suppressing them of course leads to acting out in some way and then be you know then you're just like now i have to lie about this and uh that's something that hasn't been present in my life for like three years now and in the in the you know, two years that I've been with Amanda, uh, we, you know, there's never been an occasion when I've, when I've lied to her. And that's, it's just like really cool to have something come up and sort of, Hey, this is what's happening for me. And, and I wouldn't have been able to get there to see the real reason for it if it hadn't been for some, the unconventional um, practices that I had used because I might've just been like, well, I, I lie because I do things, I do bad things because I'm a a shitty person. And then I lie because I don't want to hurt the other person. So I'm justifying the dishonesty by like, I, well, I can't tell them how shitty I am because then they'll leave. And I'm going to have this fear of abandonment and what I really, you know, and I'm protecting them. And so you, you know, your ego just does all these like weird backflippy things. And so just being able to get to the root of why the dishonesty felt so necessary uh, allowed me to stop to forgive myself for previous dishonesty, to stop feeling guilty, then to let a lot of that go and to not bring it and to not be fearful of it happening again. And so just the energy that I'm saving by not trying to constantly fight that off in what one space and also not having to constantly like throw logs on the fire of self-loathing because of shit that I couldn't forgive myself for frees up so much energy to just like be happy and live. And, um, the psychedelics played, you know, a a very crucial component with that. But I, I certainly do believe that you can get there through other means. My ego structure was just particularly wily. That is amazing. And the, you're right that when, especially as someone who's experienced a lot of trauma and someone who's very intelligent, um, the ego can then be very powerful in either creating rationalizations or, or putting up the defenses or, or being very imaginative in ways that um, won't allow you to kind of address it head on. And as you said, working with someone or um, doing an extended meditation retreat or, or anything that involves like kind of um, cornering you to come up with this stuff is uh is needed sometimes 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's been, it's been a wild journey. The, the, you know, there's no journey outward that will ever be as truly harrowing as the journey inward. And that has been really revealing for me. And I'm, I'm really excited to you know, continue doing that work. It's why I talk about it so much in my content these days. And I'm very excited to sort of loop back to all of the things we discussed earlier. I'm so, I really do feel very grateful to uh, my audience, you know, to the 15,000 people who've been following that for 10 years, following that journey. And more specifically to guys like you who have been there for forever and who still want to have, you know, a conversation, which in 2020 becomes this conversation, which is a very different conversation than it was in 2018 or would have been in 2010. And if there's a, a sort of meta lesson to break the fourth wall again, for those listening, the more that you share about yourself in a way that's interesting and, and can help people, the, the greater the chance is that over the course of now 18 years of, of producing online content in some way, there, there will be people who are interested in following that journey. And so for the two of you, I want to say thank you, but also just commend you because as you are making the shifts, I'm sure that there are so many people listening to this and reading your stuff and watching your videos who are like they're, they're ride or die. They are, they're in they're there for life. And uh, they're as excited to root for you as they are to learn from you. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yes, and you. you know, as, as they say that everything passes, everything is temporary, everything um, rises and dies, except for one thing, which is always permanent. And that is the propane discount code on uh, <laughs> John's copywriting course. Um, there will always be a hundred dollars, no matter what the uh, inflation rate is. Thank goodness! Thank goodness for that. <laughs> well, this has been an aw- another awesome episode. Thank you so much for coming back on. Oh, thank you for having me. I look forward to to uh, to doing it again in in two years. In two years, the, yeah. When every two years, we'll do it. We'll set it. We'll set it now for August twelfth of twenty twenty two, and Let's do we it. can only hope that the the bones of society are still keeping its flesh erect, and that uh, you know we have not faced the full collapse of all that we love and hold dear, and that if we have whatever has risen in its place is better and more equal, and certainly a little bit. Uh, less terrifying for for people who don't have the privilege that we do so we can all we can only hope but you know slowly we fight the good fight and i, really I hope so i mean my my kids retail thinks it's going to be a giant octopus that is ruling the world um in two years time but i, I guess we'll 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 chat in we'll two see. years and see whether that prediction has come true or not i for one welcome our new octopi overlords <laughs> so um you've got to right, you've got to be on their side haven't you you can't you can't yeah, not be I on mean, the team yeah, of the giant octopus yeah. Yeah, I am. I'm all in for the Kraken. Um, all right. I got to jump Amazing. off, but thank you so um, much for the conversation and the time, gents. Anything else you need, I am ever available. If you're listening to the Prone Paid podcast, whenever this is, and you got something out of it, please like screenshot and tag me for the gram for my validation, but also I'd love to know what you found valuable. And as always, truly, 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 if you're struggling with mental health, please slide in my DMs. John, thank Thanks you so much, man. Yeah, take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Want to learn more about the systems we use to run 
buildandscalepropanefitness.com. Head over to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast and you can get your hands on our free training that covers the seven steps that we take with every client that we help build their own online business and also the seven steps that we use to successfully build Propane Fitness. We walk through the sales systems, the delivery systems, follow-up, remarketing, how to basically build your program so that it delivers coaching to your clients without you being there 24-7. We really do cover the full thing, right? And if you want to continue even further and potentially work with us, there's a chance to book in a call to have an informal chat with Yusuf or I to just basically see if any of our programs would be a fit to help you get from where you are to where you want to get to. So go to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast today and get access to that. If you'd like to learn just more about Yusuf and I, more about us, what we do, follow us on the various channels, the best place to go is our YouTube channel. We have a load of stuff from fitness content, productivity content, why Yusuf slept on the floor for several months, why he's been having cold showers. There's always stuff on there that's entertaining and hopefully informative. So just go to YouTube, search for Propane Fitness, and you can find out a bit more about us there as well. Speak to you on the next episode.